So it's the, the beginning of the church year, so Happy New Year and Merry Christmas, as confusing as that might be. Um, and traditionally, we look or we use this Sunday and sometimes a couple of these Sundays to highlight Jesus' return in, uh, in the context of celebrating Jesus coming for the first time, you know, 2,000 years ago. Uh, but it's a little more complicated than that. The, uh, the passage that we heard read today, uh, Matthew chapter 24, if you take like that section, like the section we had in the reading, and just read that alone, then yeah, it sounds like Jesus coming and, and taking some of his followers off to heaven or something like that. But if you take a step back and look at chapters 23 to 25, so in other words, it's context, you realize that, um, one, this is really confusing, and two, Jesus is more talking about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which then leads us to ask, well, what on earth is going on here? So Jesus' disciples ask him, or, uh, or excuse me, Jesus makes a comment that the temple itself is going to be destroyed, which we know happens. The war begins in the year 66, about a generation later. And Jesus tells them as much. He uses phrases like, uh, this generation will not pass away until these things have happened. And that's in response to Jesus' disciples asking him, when is this going to take place? When is the end of this age? Now, it's not, when is the end of the world? But when is the end of this age? And Jesus then starts talking, and he gives hints, clues, suggestions that what he's really talking about first is the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Now, if you are a first century Jewish person, the destruction of the temple is kind of like the end of the world. The temple is the footstool to the throne of the almighty creator God. It is the cosmic center of the universe. So to have a bunch of Gentiles come in and destroy it again is kind of like the end of the world anyway. But Jesus starts talking about certain, uh, or he starts throwing random phrases in throughout this whole section. Things like um, the abomination of desolation, which can either refer to uh, Roman armies surrounding the city or when Emperor Nero, pretty sure it's Nero, um, tried to like enter into the temple area and construct an idol. You don't do that, by the way. Um, and then Jesus also throws out a, kind of my favorite and actually the, the most helpful phrase is as he's talking about destruction. And he uses this wild, complicated, apocalyptic language like we heard. Uh, he uses this phrase where the corpses, the vultures will be gathered. It's just kind of thrown in there. And here our English translations don't help us because it shouldn't be vulture. The word is atos. It should be eagle. He says, where the corpses, the eagles, will be gathered. Well, everybody knew back then 
back then anyway, that the eagle was the standard for the Roman military machine. It was, it was, um, it kind of like led them into to battle. It was one of the symbols actually of Roman domination. Curiously enough, there were two symbols of Roman domination. They are both in this room. One's the cross, and the other's the eagle sitting on the American flag. So, Jesus is first and foremost warning his followers, don't get caught up in the kind of weird, toxic nationalism that is starting to really ferment in Judea. And this all bears out, by the way, in in historical record. And that's why uh, he will say, and I think that was in our reading for last week, that many will come in my name saying, I am he and I am he. What he's saying here is people will come trying to lead a nationalistic rebellion against the Romans that will sound like the Messiah. Don't buy into it. Don't follow them. And when you encounter and you hear these things, get out of Jerusalem. That is essentially the message between Matthew 23 all the way to Matthew 25, verse 30, I think. Which I, I think helps make some sense because there, uh, he, in our current reading, uh, or the reading for today, there, there are a couple of like comments that Jesus makes or descriptions especially within the American church have tended to read a little too literalistically. Like when he says, there are two guys working in a field and one is taken. Two women working uh, and one is taken. And this has come to kind of signify um, what some will call like the, the rapture or something like that where God snatches up his uh, followers and leaves everyone to kind of their own devices and let them kill each other and all of that. The problem is that way of interpreting this section didn't really exist until about the mid-1800s. It was introduced by a guy named John Nelson Darby, an an Irish um, Bible teacher, essentially. And if you have an idea that hasn't existed until 1,800 years after the documents are uh, written? Question that. Because I think what Jesus is saying here is that when the Romans come in and the destruction happens, nobody's safe. Now, Jesus uh, does use phrases like, when the Son of Man is coming. And as it turns out, that's, that's a very Jewish, ancient Jewish way of saying when the judgment is coming. And he's staking his reputation as a prophet on, this, on these statements. That when, essentially, the destruction comes, it will show all the followers of Jesus and everybody who didn't listen to them that Jesus was, in fact, correct. Now, all the way to chapter 25, and I realize this is kind of dense and confusing. Um, these like three chapters are so frustrating because you need to go through it almost line by line, and that would take us like four hours. So we're not going to do that. But we may do that, by the way, in a pastor's Bible study later next year. Uh, I 
still trying to work that out. Until you get to chapter 25, verse 31. And then the, the, the way Jesus talks shifts. And instead of Jesus coming, like as like coming in judgment, then he starts talking about sitting on his throne as the judge. And then we start to realize, oh, you're actually coming back. Up until that point, I think his disciples clearly would have understood this is like the great judgment on Israel. This is the vindication. This is the condemnation of the temple leadership and everyone who rejected Jesus and set them on this path. And then Jesus starts talking about sitting on his throne and gathering all the nations and acting as this great judge of humanity. And it's almost like, okay, new scene, we're talking about something different now. So how do we bring this home and make it even remotely Christmassy? That kept me up a couple of nights this week, by the way. First off, a lot of, a lot of what we understand to be References to Jesus' second coming are not. That doesn't mean that Jesus is not returning. That just means that there's a lot of confusion, especially within the American church, about what that's going to look like. And I think the best uh, answer to that is that I have no idea. And this is where you get a lot of, like, in the realm of theology, a lot of, like, fancy terms like premillennial dispensationalism, which I am certainly not in that camp. And if you don't know what that is, you're the better for it. Um, or is Jesus coming after a thousand years of this or that? And, and uh, in my own scholarly opinion, I don't care. Because I do know that Jesus is coming back. Let's just stop there. Because that is good news. It doesn't sound like good news at first, though. I saw a uh, t-shirt at a mall a couple years ago that said, Only God can judge me. And I may have mentioned this before to y'all. I can't remember. But uh, I feel like, first off, if you're proudly proclaiming only God can judge me, you probably lack self-awareness. But secondly, that's not, that shouldn't be comforting. I mean, Jesus, like the, the fact that there is some kind of future date where we will stand before Jesus on his throne, and he will look right through us. I mean, and he already knows everything about us is a little unsettling. Because he knows about that. And he knows about that other thing. And Lord help us, he knows about what's going on up in our heads. And he knows about that thing that happened when nobody was looking. And he knows about the way that we treated that person and in that situation. Like, 
having your soul laid bare before anybody is a very scary experience. Have you ever been called out on something and you knew that you were stuck? There was no way to weasel out. You just had to admit that, yes, you were, you were wrong. I was wrong. What does that feel like? I'm starting to see people shift a little bit. That's right. That's the proper response. Only Jesus is intending to do this on a cosmic scale. He speaks in like universal terms. Everybody will stand before him. So as Jesus is telling this to his disciples, he is, I think, two days away from Passover. And they have specifically gone to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, although Jesus knows that this, is, this Passover is going to be a little different for his disciples and for himself. And he has in his head this new Exodus idea. Like, just like Moses led his people from slavery in Egypt, Jesus is going to be this Passover lamb who gives himself up so that his own lambs, the people who follow him, will receive something very, very special. They will be marked by his blood. That when they stand before Jesus, their souls lay bare. Your souls lay bare. My, souls, my soul laid bare. All my thoughts, all my actions, all the things I've tried to hide or pretend like don't exist about me. And when that gavel or that hammer should come down on that bench and, be, and I should be pronounced guilty, you should be pronounced guilty, because of what Jesus is about to accomplish as he's giving this wild and complicated view of what's going to happen within that next generation and then however many generations ahead, that you will stand before God, you will be clearly guilty. And yet the gavel will come down on that bench and you and me will be pronounced not guilty. Judgment is rendered. There's no sentence. You are not guilty. You may leave a free person. Period. Which is why, personally, and as like a scholar theologian, I have no interest in trying to figure out the details of Jesus' return, what that might look like or when that might happen, because at the very least, we already know the outcome. Jesus is the Lamb who was slain, will be the just judge. And when you appear before that judge, as followers of Jesus, as guilty as you are, 
The verdict will be not guilty. You may go. And not only that, but the earth itself, the Apostle Paul says, will breathe a sigh of relief, waiting for its stewards, the image bearers, the true human beings, to rule over it in this, what he also calls the new creation. It will be a celebration. Other ways of depicting it are like a giant banquet, like a wedding feast. Wedding feast, the receptions, that's the best part. Don't tell anyone I said that because I'm usually the one doing the ceremony. The reception's the best part. Because it's a party. It's full of possibility. It's full of good food and fun. I'm not much of a dancer, but I like the other parts. When Jesus, the just judge, brings all of humanity before him and sees us and pronounces us not guilty, you can almost see it on the pages of the New Testament. It's not guilty. You may go as you please. Let's party. I've been waiting for this for a long time. So yes, Jesus is returning no, that is not something to really obsess about. Yes, Jesus will be the judge. You will be declared in Jesus not guilty. Let's party. Merry Christmas. I invite you to rise as you are able.